Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Like all of us, Lawrence Neil Bonnet was an everyday guy just looking for his place in life. When he discovered stock car racing as a teenager, it was as if he had jumped over the moon. He was a pipe fitter by trade and a short track racer on the weekends. He traveled all around Alabama, racing out of a small shop behind his home in Hueytown, the place Bobby and Donnie Allison and Red Farmer had put on the map beginning in the early 1960s. Neil had a habit of hanging out at Bobby's shop at night turning wrenches, helping where he could to get Bobby's Cup Series cars ready to race. He'd stay up all night and then go to his real job in the early mornings. And over time, that led to some rides in Bobby's short track cars in 1974, opened the door to his own Cup Series career. Wins for Bonnet at Richmond in Ontario, California in 1977 led to a phone call, the phone call of his life. It came from team owner Glenn Wood in 1979 when the Wood brothers parted ways with three-time Cup Series champion David Pearson in April of that year. Bonnet was testing an IndyCar at Indianapolis when someone working for the Speedway said, Hey, Neil, there's somebody on the phone for you, some guy named Glenn Wood. Well, as you can imagine, that changed everything. Neil won nine races for Glenn and Leonard Wood, four for team owners Butch, Mock, and Bob Rahealy, and three for team owner Junior Johnson through 1988 for a total of 18 career wins, and that counted the two wins for Jim Stacy in 1977. He could definitely drive a race car and win, no question about that, and he even won a special NASCAR race in Australia before the 1988 season began. That win as well as back-to-back wins at Richmond at Rockingham that year were nothing short of a miracle. He shattered his right leg in a crash at Charlotte Motor Speedway in October of 1987 and went through months of extremely painful rehab just to get back in a race car, let alone win in one. Neil the person, oh, that's easy. Kind, gentle, funny, remarkable, witty, humble, determined, talented, generous, He never met a stranger. When we lost him in the single car crash at Daytona on February 11th, 1984, during the first practice session a few days before the Daytona 500, the garage area was overtaken by a dark cloud of unspeakable sadness. Only one thought that kept coming to everyone's mind that day and throughout the remainder of our time in Daytona, Neil Bonnet was the greatest of friends first and a racer second. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the edition number 61. That's episode 61 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy Ben White, and we, we're coming off a great show last week. We had an absolutely fantastic turnout and response from the, the listeners. Not only did you tune in, but we got a lot of good comments from folks, and I really appreciate the uh, the good words from everyone. So thank you very much for that. And we're going to have an equally strong show again this uh, to this episode as well. We're going to be talking about the late great Neil Bonnet, and for a lot of the fans who you know maybe are younger or maybe weren't around uh, when Neil was um, in his prime, you know he was an excellent driver. Kind of he was kind of like one of the almost like the proverbial. NASCAR Cup driver, the way he worked his way up from, you know, working uh, in the shop, you know, working as a mechanic, and then worked his way into the driver's seat. And uh, sadly, we lost him uh, in a wreck uh, almost 30 years ago. And Ben's going to talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. 
But Neil Bonnet, you know, to me was a very, he was kind of like the working man's driver. I mean, you know, you could talk about Dale Earnhardt uh, Sr. You could talk about, you know, guys like, uh, you know, uh, Tim Tim Flock was also kind of like a worker's uh, kind of driver. But, you know, Neil Bonnet was just kind of like the everyman kind of driver, in my opinion. And Ben, you know, you have a lot of uh, memories, a lot of history with Neil Bonnet. Um, Just a really great down to earth, very uh, laid back kind of guy. And, you know, but at the same time had a tremendous amount of talent behind the wheel as well, too. I mean, you know, when you look back at Neil, you know, the fact that it's been almost 30 years since we lost him. Um, what do you, what do you remember most? I mean, what's like one of your top one or two favorite uh, Neil Bonnet stories? Well, I'll tell you what, Jerry, the thing talking about Neil, first off his personality, mm-hmm. uh, he, he never met a stranger. That's what, what really struck me about Neil the most is if he walked up on someone that he didn't know in the first five seconds, 10 seconds, he knew them. And you felt like you knew pretty much everything there was to know about Neil. He just, he was so personable, uh, in his demeanor and his, uh, just the way he was in contact with people around him. You know, I'll tell you very quickly, the first time I ever met Neil, I knew him as a reporter driver and that sort of relationship, but not very well. Uh, You know, keeping in mind that my first year as a reporter in NASCAR, a writer in NASCAR was 1983. So we are, this is 1985 when this happened. And I've mentioned this before. We're at Rockingham, North Carolina Motor Speedway. And we had just, uh, I guess we'd done a, a press conference of some kind on a Friday morning, again, March of 1985. And oh, a couple hours had gone by. And this is back in the time when you didn't have a ton of crew members around mm-hmm. cars. You didn't have specialists around cars. Now, nowadays, you got a specialist for everything. But back in those days, you probably had 10 or 12 guys total around the race cars at the racetracks. And so, Neil was on the back of the 1985 Chevrolet Junior Johnson and Associates number 12 car. And he was, he was leaning up against the back glass of the car and he has legs propped up on the spoiler and he's in this red driver's suit. He's driving for junior. And I'm just walking by in the garage area on a mission of some sort. And he said, he saw me walk by and he said, Hey, Hey, come here. And I was like, who's he talking to? <laughs> and I thought, me and I looked, you know, what I say you see in the movies when the guy looks around and he's like, Are you talking to me? He's like, Yeah, I'm talking to you. Come here. <laughs> and it was like, now keep in mind, I didn't know him at all. And he said, Can I ask you a question? And I said, Sure. And he's still sitting on the back of his race car here. He said, You're okay? Let me ask you a question. I said, Sure. Yeah. And and I'm in awe of this guy already. I mean, I, I did not know him. I'm two years into my racing career, young kid. I'm probably, well, I'm 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh he said, Do you understand women? It's <laughs> like, no, of course I don't understand women. Of course, what are you talking about? And he said, Well, let me tell you what's going on. I said, Okay, so Susan and I had a really not so good conversation on the phone last night. Susan's his wife. And she wanted me to do this, and I wanted to do that. And I just can't understand why she wants me to do it this way. And she's, she was really adamant about what she wants to do. And I was it's like, why are you asking me this? <laughs> I mean, first off, I'm not even past the fact that this is Neil Bonnet asking the little old Ben White about this question. And the second thing is, this is Neil Bonnet. And he's asking me a question. You know, it's like and the topic of conversation is not springs or shocks or why I ran so good at Richmond last week. This is like, he's asking me why what about this conversation with his wife? And I said, well, listen, dude, I'm not really dating anybody right now, but I'm not married and I really don't have an answer to your question, but you know, I'm really honored that you're asking, but I don't have the answer to the question. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Let's not go in that direction. Uh, uh, how do you feel about fishing? You know, that kind of thing. I said, well, fishing's okay. I, you know, I've done that. So I went down to the Savannah river with my dad when I was young and, you know, the fish were biting so good. It seemed like they were just jumping onto the bank. And we got on these conversations. It's like, I was just so honored that he wanted me, wanted little old me to talk about 
things with him. But but that first topic of conversation was I was expecting anything under the sun other than that. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying, Jerry? He's like, I didn't know him at all, but he's like, he felt comfortable talking to me. And it, I don't know why he chose me. I, it could have been that I just came out of the media center at that time. And I was, I was the first guy he picked, I guess, but that was Neil Bonnet. That was the way he was. And he, and it, you could ask anybody in the garage area, even today that knew Neil, he was so personable and he was somebody. And from then on, we were great friends and there would be times I'd go to Neil and say, Hey, what do you think of this and that? I didn't know necessarily talk to him about my, you know, my wife or anything, but I mean, it was just stuff that we became really good friends. And I just, I loved him dearly as a friend. And, and we, I did many interviews with Neil over the years for NASCAR illustrated and, and other features I wrote. And I don't know, just, just a great guy. And, and so many stories I can tell you about on today's show that they're remarkable about Neil Bonnet. Well, Ben, you know, I mean, it goes without saying how talented of a writer you are, but I never knew Ben White is also a marriage counselor. You know, if this NASCAR thing doesn't work out, I, maybe you might want to it, you know? <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, you know, but I just was so flattered that he's like, you're asking me, me. I was, I was too young to know anything about anything at that point, but it was just so cool that he asked. I was really honored that he wanted to talk to me about that. Well, I mean, you know, us, us, us guys, we got to stick together, brother. You know I mean? You know, yeah. sometimes these women folk, they just, um, yeah, they can, yeah, they can drive it's, us crazy, uh, you know? <laughs> well, it's like, it's like the male handbook. It's like page one of the male handbook. It's like, first off, you'll never understand. Yep. <laughs> you'll never understand women. And That's right. it's like every, on every page at the bottom of every other page, refer to page one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we love you. We, we love you ladies out there listening to the show. We just don't, right. don't understand always. <laughs> you're right. always right. You're always right. Let's, yep. let's yep. establish that going in. You're always That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. I learned that a long, long time ago. It'd be 30. Yes. What's going to be? It's going to be 30, what? 37 years for me in June. And yeah, I learned the first month. She's always right. I'm always wrong. Yeah. We'll just leave it. Uh, at you're that. always right. That's 32 right. years for me. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, going back to Neil for a second, yeah. um, you know, he was like you said earlier, I mean, he was just so personable in his, he had the charisma, but at the same time, you know, I know he was one of Dale's uh, Earnhardt seniors, closest friends. They used to go fishing all the time. Um, you know, he hung around with, you know, guys who, how do I say this? Um, had more success than he had at the time, although he was a very successful driver in and, in and of his own right. But the point is that, you know, if he, if we had not lost him, I'm very convinced that Neil would have been much, 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 much more successful. Um, and here's another thing too. I was doing something this morning. We're taping here on Wednesday and I was looking at the list of nominees for the NASCAR Hall of Fame, and I didn't realize Neil is not in the Hall of Fame, and he is on this year's ballot. I, I, I think he's been on it for a few years, but mm -hmm. I, I'm surprised that a guy like that hasn't already been inducted. But at the same time, you know, he was taken so prematurely from us. I mean, th this is always the the toughest kind of question to ask and answer. But you know, had Neil not lost his life in such a tragic way? What would you, how would you have quantified what he would have become? I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, he, you know, he was a little bit embarrassed at the fact that he only won 18 races during his career. And it's like, well, gosh, Neil, I mean, 18 Cup Series victories is not something to sneeze at. You right. Did really well. But you know what? I think, uh, I think. I think he would be remembered not only as a, an outstanding race car driver, but he had an immense talent behind the microphone as well. Mm -hmm. He worked with CBS and TNN and, and various networks. And, and that was what was so beautiful about Neil. Again, the way that he did not meet a stranger, whether it be a race fan or, or the CEO of a major fortune 500 company, he was so personable with everybody, as we've said, but when he got behind the microphone, he was so talented in that respect. And then when he was telling people what was going on on the racetrack, 
he was so knowledgeable because of what he could do inside a race car. He could explain to people this particular driver or that one, you know, the reason why he came down at a particular part on the racetrack and got in trouble and spun or whatever that case was. And he could present that in such a clear and concise way that the fan in the recliner, having his favorite beverage, having those chips at home. Oh, I get that. I understand that. That, that makes all the sense in the world. Some people who are behind the microphone in the booth, uh, no disrespect to them, but they can't quite explain what's going on. So had he lived, I think he would have had a tremendous, tremendous career as an announcer. And, you know, ironically, you know, Ken Squire and Mike Joy and Daryl Waltrip and some folks, Larry McReynolds, some folks, uh, even though Larry McReynolds at the time of his death was still a crew chief, mm-hmm there was a lot of people who tried to say to him, okay, you've done this. Uh, you've been successful. Uh, you'd be so, so good behind the microphone and you, that way you got a second career. Yep. And he's like, no, I just, I really, really want to get back inside of a race car again. It's so important to me to do it. And they tried so hard to talk him out of it. He had a six race deal, uh, to go back behind uh, the the steering wheel, not the microphone. And sadly we lost him, but had he gone back to just doing television work and been in that for say the next 20 years, like what Neb Jarrett did, Mm -hmm. what Dale Jarrett did, uh, went from driving race cars to, to becoming broadcaster. He would have been tremendous at that. He was already tremendous at that. And had he stayed there, uh, he would have won many, many awards. And, uh, any, you know, even Benny Parsons did that after, after stepping away from the microphone, from the steering wheel, went to the mm-hmm. microphone. Yeah. To answer your question, that's what he would have done and been very, very successful at it for sure. What was it about that era? And we're talking, you know, the, the pretty much from like the middle to end of the sixties up until eh, maybe the nineties, give or take. I mean, we had so many great broadcasters, like you mentioned, Ned Jarrett, Benny Parsons, uh, Neil Bonnet. I mean, the, the list was just almost seemingly endless. What, what was it about that era? And I mean, I get the, the mechanical knowledge. I get the driving knowledge. I get what they could relate, but their personalities, the, the way they reacted with the viewers, was it, it was almost universal. They were all on the same page. Whereas today's um, um, analysts and that kind of thing, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, and I, and I mean, mean this with all due respect to the guys today, but I would much rather listen to some of those guys from the past, like a Neil Jared, like a Neil Bonnet, um, or Ned Jared rather, or Neil Bonnet, or, you know, um, uh, Benny Parsons, you know, uh, guys like that. They, they just had a, I don't know, almost like a down home feel that you don't have today. Am I, am I crazy in saying that or, or not? No, I don't think so. I think they, those guys, when they left the driver's seat, they still had a great passion for the sport and, and they knew it was time to step away in the same sense with Buddy Baker and the same sense, like you said, with Benny Parsons, mm-hmm. they were at the end of their careers, but they just didn't want to stay home and, and not be around the racetrack, you know, uh, and, and talking to Richard Petty, even though he's never gone, uh, oh, maybe I won't say never. I think a couple of times he's gone to the broadcast booth to sort of help, but not, that's not what he wanted to do on a full-time basis, mm-hmm. but they just, the, the passion for racing was still there and they wanted to find something they could do. A lot of times you see that with say, uh, former quarterbacks or players in the NFL, they go to the, the broadcast booth to fulfill that second chapter of their lives or that, that the passion that's still there. Same thing with those guys. Um, you see that today with Dale Jr. You see that with Jeff Burton. Uh, but those, you're right. Those guys just had a magical uh, sense of what was going on in the racetrack, a great delivery behind the microphone. Uh, something just, I don't know, some, I use the word magical. And, I, and, I, and that's what's so cool. You can go back and and the beauty of, of going back to other the audio video stuff that you can pull up on any computer today, right. go back and enjoy some of those old races and listen to Ken Squire. What a wonderful, uh, talented man he is. Uh, and of course the late Barney Hall was so great on radio. So yeah, all those guys are just, it's, it's a magical error. 
of, uh, of delivery and, and behind the microphone. And Neil was one of those great guys that joined them after he left the driver's seat for, for a bit. Now, now going back to Neil as the driver, um, you know, back in the day, you know, again, we're talking, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, until his passing, um, there were a lot of um, aggressive, sometimes overly aggressive drivers. But Neil, he was he was aggressive, but in a good way. He was not a dirty racer. He would not put you in the wall. He would not give you the chrome horn. I mean, he was very, uh, he knew his limits and he knew the limits, knew the limits of his race car as well, too. And, you know, that's why I'm I still kind of I, I, I'm a little surprised that he got along so well with a guy like Earnhardt because Earnhardt was almost like the antithesis of what Neil Bonna was. Earnhardt was, you know, Mr. Macho had no no fear or compulsion about putting the guy in the wall if he had to do to win a race, whereas Neil was kind of. Yeah, I'm going to race you hard. I'm going to race you tight, but I'm also going to race you clean. I mean, can can you talk a little bit about that too as well? Well, sure. And you know, the way, just a little background about the way Neil started uh, in the mid to late 60s, he was racing at places like Birmingham Speedway, Dixie Speedway, Montgomery, Alabama, all those short tracks. And like every other racer, he was racing on a shoestring budget, trying to make things work, but he was also a professional a pipe fitter mm-hmm. in the daytime and racing on the weekends. And, and so he, he sort of had an, an appreciation for what it was like to have to race on a shoestring. And he didn't want to put another guy in the wall to try to win a race. He just wasn't raised that way. And he knew how hard it was to put those dollars together mm-hmm. to, to build a competitive race car. Cause he certainly didn't want anybody to do it to him. And, and to take the story just a smidge further, uh, he would basically go over to, and he was from the, the Huey town area, just like Bobby Allison, Donnie Allison. So that's why he was part of that Alabama gang. And he'd mm-hmm. go over at night and help Bobby in 1977, 76 area era. And that's when Bobby was running what he called the Nash, which was basically his nickname for the Matador. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to make that work and he needed all the help he could get. So Neil would say, well, don't pay me. Just let, I'll just come over and help you, which anytime you tell a team owner, don't pay me, that's always, you know, magic golden words to hear. (laughs) Right. So, so Neil would go over and help him build engines and do all kinds of work on the cars and, then he would work all night and basically go back to his eight, nine to five or eight to five job as a pipe fitter. And that impressed Bobby. He was a real, real hardworking guy, uh, to come over and do that. So when Bobby needed help, uh, as far as driving race cars, Bobby would go East with a car and, and Neil would go West in one of Bobby's cars. And it got to the point where, where Neil was winning more races than Bobby was. And it's like, okay, well, this kid's got some talent. So when a couple of times when, uh, you know, Bobby needed some help driving some cars here and there, uh, maybe on the cup series level, then he would put Neil in a car and Bobby would be in a car, that kind of thing. So that's right. sort of how Neil got paid back for all those many, many hours of working on the Matador that, uh, you know, Bobby would help him get a, a cup ride here or two with maybe a cup car he had or somebody else needed a driver. So one of those instances, and I'll back up just a smidge, uh, back in 76, uh, when uh, Bobby had a crash when he was driving for Roger Penske, uh, he was driving a late model car in Elko, Minnesota, and crashed really hard, broke some bones in his feet, got hurt pretty badly. Uh, when they needed a relief driver in Richmond, of course, Neil was one of the guys, the guy to that Bobby tapped to help as a relief driver. And nobody knew who Neil was. Right. So as a gag, and, and Neil was all the time a prankster in any way, just having fun with racing. So when Neil showed up at Richmond, he borrowed a suit driver's suit and he just took a piece of duct tape and taped over the name on the suit and he wrote neil who on it because everybody's <laughs> like who who's this neil guy who is this neil guy 
So he played along a rope Neil who, so actually the relationship went, went further back than just the matador years It's actually started really back about 73 or four when Bobby was, uh, you know, running his own car, his own Chevrolet. And there were times when he would run Penske's matador and he had his own Chevelle and he would put Neil in the Chevelle and he would run the matador for Penske. And then in 77, he ran the, Pens the matador again and uh bobby did and so there was just that was a long relationship that he and neil had in those in the mid 70s and then that led to neil getting a good ride in 77 with nord kroskoff who was had the number 71 k and k car that bobby isaac drove and that's when he won his first race neil did and mm -hmm. so it, through bobby's help he was able to get some good rides that led to a great career for neil Right. You know, one thing about Neil, and I'm going through some stats here, you know, he had one son that raced David and David never raced in the cup series, but he did race 19, 19 starts in the Xfinity series. And then David's son, Justin Bonnet, he, um, you know, was in the late model racing and, and things like that. And he was involved in one of the worst wrecks I think I've ever seen, uh, at least on TV. Uh, he was practicing for the snowflake, I think it was a Snowflake 100, I think they called it, down in Pensacola, Florida, the Five Flags Speedway, uh, back in, I think it was December of 2019, if I remember correctly, uh, and got hurt very badly. A lot of broken bones, a lot of burns, that kind of thing. And I, I got a chance to really get to know Justin. We, we talked quite a bit on the phone. We texted each other and that kind of thing. And, you know, even though his grandfather was, you know, essentially – for lack of a better word, almost like a, uh, a vague memory because, you know, he passed away in, was it 94? I think it was mm -hmm. um, still the fact that he was Neil Bonnet's grandson was something he was extremely proud of. And um, in fact, uh, David's, I believe it's David's. No. Yeah. I think it was David's sister. If I remember correctly, um, was also Justin's like PR person kind of thing too. And I thought that kid really had a, an opportunity to really go somewhere. I mean, he was starting to get a lot of people in the cup series uh, interested in helping him out. And then he had the bad crash. And um, honestly, I've been talking to him now for probably maybe a year and a half. So I don't even know if he's back to racing or not. I know he's going to be going back to racing and then COVID hit. And then I, I we kind of lost track with each other. But the point is that, you know, this was a family that, was a third generation racing family. I mean, we had Neil, we had his son, David, and then we had uh, his grandson, Justin, uh, were involved. And, you know, it, it's, 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 it always warms my heart to see family members follow in the footsteps of, you know, the, either the, the father or the grandfather, what have you, um, you know, that David followed in Neil's footsteps for a while there. And then obviously Justin followed in both his father's and his grandfather's footsteps, you know, the fact that that Neil was so well versed and so experienced, not just as a driver, but like you said, I mean, he he you know started uh, doing a lot of mechanical stuff around the shops early on to get you know kind of get his foot in the door. He also was a pipe fitter by trade, like you said. I mean, that's kind of the the st kind of stories I really enjoy hearing about how these guys you know went from you know virtually nothing uh, to become something and there's always those backstories that are just so fascinating to me. And like I said, I talked to Justin quite a bit about his grandfather and just was so, so much I learned about Neil that I didn't know. And I, I really didn't know much about Neil to begin with, but um, you know, the, the, it was, it's always warm, heartwarming to hear somebody, you know, even if they didn't really have that direct contact with the grandfather, I mean, still that yeah. he remembered who he was and his knowledge and, and things like that that he talked so highly about him. He was very proud to be a bonnet, but uh, yeah, well, bonnet. the thing about Neil, he was so much fun to be yeah. around. And I know David could, could vouch for that too. And I mean, it, he'd loved racing on the cup series. He took it very, very seriously when he was in the race car, but he was so quiet about, and that's what fascinates me about so many of these guys that even Richard Petty too. I mean, when you speak to him, he's got such a soft nature and soft mm -hmm. voice, but the man traveled, you know, for 30, what, 32 years at 200 miles an hour and, and mixed it up with everybody. But talking about Neil, he, he too was just very calm and collected. I, I, I've got another funny one to tell you about when sure. he won his first race in 1977 at Richmond, 
uh, he, you know, it was first win, big win. And he was again, Nord Kroskov, I think was his team owner then. And, and, that, and that's a bit, that was a big team in the seventies, 1977. They changed their number from 71 to number five because of a sponsor, uh, requested it. And, uh, so, so Neil goes out, wins at the old track at Richmond and this, there was a new, um, sportscaster at the local Richmond, uh, television station. And he, instead of calling him Neil Bonnet, he called him Niles Bonet for some reason. <laughs> he thought he was like French. <laughs> so, so, so for whatever reason, I don't know why he, he just thought he was a, a French, I guess, French race car driver. He, he just kept saying throughout the, the broadcast, Niles Bonet wins today at Richmond Fairgrounds Raceway. We'll be back in a moment to give you the story. Well, he, he comes back, tells the whole story. He led so many laps and one was Richard Petty second or Kale second, whatever the case is. And so for the next, the next week, I think they went to Rockingham the next week or North Carolina Murray Speedway. So some of the writers were calling him, Hey, Niles Bonet, Niles <laughs> Bonet, come here. He's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? So I said, didn't you hear you won the race at Richmond, but every, you know, the sportscaster called you Niles Bonet. So all weekend they were calling him on the PA system for NASCAR. What Niles Bonet, please come to the <laughs> registration office, you know, stuff like that. They were just giving him a hard time. So finally Neil just jumped on board and announced to everyone. My name is not Neil Bonnet. My name is Niles Bonet. So he, <laughs> he plays along. He played along with stuff like that all the time. He was a fun loving kind individual that he, he played jokes on himself. I mean, that he took it. Well, he, he was not the kind that got mad and hateful about things. He just, he fun, fun time. But when it came to strapping into a race car, now he was pretty aggressive. And there was times too, that he and Daryl Waltrip, we got into a, a scuffle or two on the racetrack and Daryl, you know, slide him up the track or whatever. And then Daryl has tell told stories about how he, got whiplash because he you know he looked in his mirror and there was neil back there tapping his <laughs> rear end saying why'd you put me in the wall for so he could be very aggressive on the racetrack if he made mad but you know he was very calm and cool and just he was a fun guy to hang out with i mean like let me tell you one more real quick they were at, at pocono one time and you know he and deer are, are pretty pretty well known to get on the racetrack up there. Mm -hmm. And so this was 1985 and, and they were trying to radio to him and say, Hey, there's deer on the back, back stretch. Just be careful or whatever. And he could say, what? I can't hear you. What? And about that time he hit a deer. Oh, and so he comes back and this is driving for junior and he comes back and he's got, you know, horns and fur and everything in the front of this car. First time I've ever known of them going, anybody going to a backup car because of a deer, but they, that day they had to. And, and so he gets out of the car and says, Oh my God, I think I just killed Bambi, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, he just had a, I'm so sorry, but I think I just killed Bambi, but it's just stuff like that. And he had, he would have these really funny quips and really funny things to say. And off the top of his head, very, very quick witted, very funny personality. And that's what we all loved about Neil. He was just always a lot of fun. And that, that was just Neil Bonner. You know, Neil, going back to something I said of me about 10, 15 minutes ago, and I wanted to follow it up and I just thought about it. Um, you know, we talked about the difference in personality on the racetrack between him and Dale senior, but they were so yeah. tight off the racetrack and yet they were so different. I mean, that difference do you, do you have any good stories about how they interacted off the racetrack? I mean, they, they were fishing buddies, hunting buddies. I mean, yeah. tell me about the, the well, it was very, really a, a, um, a different dichotomy, if you will. Yeah, I think so. I think Dale, if this is the way you could put, maybe I'm using an analogy, Dale, Dale would be the kind of guy that would be driving. If you put it personalities to it, Dale would be the guy uh, on an interstate on a seven or eight lane interstate uh, with his foot in the throttle and, you know, Neil would be kind of like in the, in the right, far right lane at 60 miles an hour. That, that was kind of the way that, and they complimented each other that way. Cause Dale would, you know, Dale was always, what are you doing? What's going on? What's going on? What is it? Neil's like, Dale, calm down. You know, one of those deals, they were sort of like, a, a, they complimented one another in the respect that their personalities were so different. 
they would fish that way. Like for instance, when, when they fish together, Dale would say, put your head down. I'm on, I'm on throw the line over your head. And it's like, yeah, I know you'd usually normally do that. You know, <laughs> it was one of those really wild on one end and really calm on the other. Right. And somehow they just really compliment. They'd, they'd hunt together that way. They'd fish that way. He was the, Neil was the calming factor that Dale never had, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah. yeah right. They, they were buddies. They were brothers, uh, for some other reason, they, they just really hit it off and they were that way, uh, from the time they both got into the cup series, uh, in the late seventies until, uh, you know, Neil's death on February 11th, 1994 at Daytona and during the crash in practice. And, you know, and, and Dale really shut down that weekend, uh, he, and not rightly so, I would have acted exactly the same way. He couldn't talk to anybody for, for that, you know, on that Friday when he passed, uh, he just shut down, shut down, shut down. And it was hard for all of us that day. Uh, and, and I mean, the last person in the world that you would think would lose his life in a race car. Uh, I could see Neil really falling off a ladder, cleaning out his gutters a lot faster than I could that because, you know, and I can give you the story while I have, you know, the mic here, but we were just in Daytona that Friday and we were sitting around the media center. Uh, I, I was trying, I was telling you this off air. I was trying to remember if Neil came in the media center, the, on that Thursday morning, uh, the day of the 125 qualifying races, or if it was the Friday, gosh, I don't remember. I I, I want to say this is really, I guess the qualifying races were the next Thursday. I'm trying to put all this together, but I do know that Neil is in the, that Thursday morning or that Friday morning. I want to say it was the Thursday, but he came in dressed in, in a blazer and a coat. And I mean, a, a white shirt and tie and, and gray uh, slacks. And, and he just said, Hey boys, how you doing? What's going on? He was getting ready to do some stuff for CBS sports. And he was you know, doing the, that as well as driving the car that weekend. It was myself, Steve Wade. I think Tom Higgins was there. We were just sitting around drinking coffee and he just kind of sat down with us. And we were just talking, nothing formal. We weren't doing interviews. Just, Hey, how's it going? What's up? How you doing? And we had about a 15 or 20 minute visit. But he said, oh my gosh, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go tape some stuff. We'll see you guys later. And we didn't think anything of it. Uh, you know, this is just a typical visit with Neil. And then the next morning, I do remember this. I was talking to Eddie Wood and Lynn Wood. This is a Friday morning, uh, February 11th, 1994. They had bumped into Neil at the local donut shop, the Krispy Kreme shop. Neil was three or four people ahead. And uh, he was in line to get them and he, he saw the Wood Brothers back there who he had driven for. And he bought a couple of dozen donuts while he was up there. And then when he come back to meet them, he handed them two dozen donuts. <laughs> and, you know, just that was typical Neil. And he was wearing a pair of jeans, a flannel shirt, and he was headed to the racetrack. Uh, he was driving for James Finch that day, the 51, uh, country time car. Right. And things were all normal. Everything was great. Uh, he went to the garage area, checked out the car and did some things, talked to the crew, talked to James. It was his time to go out on the racetrack, uh, all well and good. Nothing, no, nothing to suspect anything was going to go wrong. And then we were sitting in the, uh, media center, which is not the same media center that they have now. And we got word that by, that Neil had crashed hard and we'll, we'll let you know the outcome. And we all just immediately felt like that didn't sound right to us, that something was terribly wrong. And I met Bobby Allison outside the media center and he was in a little bit of a hurried pace. And I said, what's up? He said, I'm going to the hospital. Things don't look good with Neil. Oh boy. oh boy. And I said, okay. And I said, I'll, he said, I'll call you. I said, okay. And I went back in and then in the next, uh, hour or so we began starting get, getting word that things were not good. And then Bobby did call me later and said that he had passed away. And I was just, 
this just doesn't seem, you know, it's still today. I just feel even 28 years later, reliving it, retelling it now, it hurts just as bad. I mean, I just, you know, Neil was everybody's buddy, everybody's friend and, and gosh, it's hard to talk about, but I mean, it was just, I remember it like it was yesterday, but we had just talked to Neil the day before everything was great working for CBS. And I think we even said to ourselves, then we were, after he'd left, I said, boy, he's so good working for CBS. That's where he needs to be. Right. Right. And I don't think anybody really wanted him to go back into racing again, because you got to go look back to something, you know, back uh, in July, July 25th, 1993 was the day he went uh, to Talladega driving for uh, Richard Childress in that 31 car, the Goodrich car, a sister car to Dale Earnhardt. And that's the day he flipped the car there at Talladega. And we were all hoping, okay, this is your last ride. You went back, you did it. You were okay. You come out of the car, fine. The car flipped in the trouble and you've been there, done that. Okay. And then we were all hoping it was over. And then I think he was at New Hampshire later in 93 when he announced the six race deal with James Fitch. It's like, okay, I thought you were not going to do this anymore. Right. So I don't know. It was just something he, he had a hard time putting down the steering wheel. He still wanted to race and they was, but he was very happy to get that six race deal with James uh, for 94. And sadly, this was the outcome, but I, I still remember that day vividly as if it happened yesterday. And Sadly, we lost Neil that day, but, uh, it just, it was a single car crash and for whatever reason, lost control of the car. We don't know exactly what happened, but, uh, uh, coming off a of turn four, uh, got sideways and went to the ball and that was it. But, uh, a fun, fun guy. We all loved dearly and uh, we lost him that day. You know, one thing that, that, um, I was looking at some research information here ben and you know when he went back in the car he was 47 years old and even though you know back then in your 40s even into your 50s you guys still were very um uh, efficient and successful uh, a lot of times but i'm looking at on april 1st 1990 he gets into a, a really bad wreck at darlington and that's when he segued into the booth for CBS, TNN, and then TBS. And then, um, you know, he went all of the rest of 1990, all of the 91, and all of 92. He began testing for uh, Earnhardt and Childress back then. And then, like you said, he, he would race at Talladega in 93 and then flip the car. You would almost think that after being out of the car for as long as he was, and then to come back to Talladega and have, you know, such a bad wreck, that would have been, you know, almost like God tapping you on the shoulder saying, okay, I got your attention now. This is it. That was the last time. And, you know, even though he was happy to get that six race ride, uh, or six ride, yeah, six race ride with James Finch. Um, you just often wonder about the mindset of a driver who just, you know, has so much more he wants to accomplish, but at the same time, you walk away from, you know, a, a a very burgeoning and successful TV career, uh, you know, at that age, it, it just, it still kind of boggles my mind that he went back into a race car. I mean, yeah, going back to Talladega, I could see he had something to prove. He, you know, he didn't leave on his own terms because they had wrecked in Darlington in 1990, but, you know, to come back for one race wreck, and then you say, okay, I'm going to sign a six race deal it just, it's kind of, it's kind of hard for me to quantify that in my mind that, you know, you had everything going for you. You, you know, you could have gotten rid of all the, the risk versus the reward you would have had in the TV booth. And yet he still had that desire, even at, at his age to get back in the race car. It just really kind of boggles my mind. Well, I think, I think the way you have to look at it is, you know, racing was number one in his life. Well, his family was number one racing was number two, of course, but I, you know, it's, um, that's what he did and that's what he loved. And even though he enjoyed the TV stuff and the radio stuff and working in the booth and calling races, it just didn't fulfill his heart. He mm -hmm. really wanted to go, uh, back on the racetrack. And I think, and this is just my opinion, but I think if he could have won one more race and, and maybe race number 19 
and and gone out a winner, then maybe he could have said, okay, I'm done. But he could not get past that. And I think the years between the crash, April 1st, 1990, which he really got hurt in at Darlington uh, and caused some head injuries and some uh, pretty severe amnesia and took a long time to get back from Um, that. That was a tough part for him. And from that time on, watching everybody else race and watching uh, everyone uh, turning their steering wheels and going mm-hmm. to victory lane and all that. It just, it was just heartbreaking to him that he wasn't out there. Cause that's really all he had ever known. But, but looking back on something else too, I mean, you know, he, from the time he was probably 15, 16, I don't know exactly the year he started racing on those short tracks around Birmingham and around Alabama. That's really all he knew other than, being a pipe fitter he loved racing and you know i think i had heard his wife susan say many times he just was walk around the house just miserable because he couldn't drive a race car mm-hmm. during those recovery years and and very happy when richard childress told him yeah we're going to enter you in that talladega race and the fact that he flipped the car that day of not of his doing someone else got into him, I believe. And that just wasn't the one piece that satisfied him. I think he wanted to take one more checkered flag or at least finish another race to say, all right, I'm done. That, that was a piece of the puzzle that just wasn't satisfying. And he wanted to go back and finish those six races. Maybe after those six races were completed say, okay, I'm done. Now I'm going to go back and, and, you know, be in the, in the broadcast booth now. Mm-hmm. hard to say but uh you know and something else i remember too while i'm while I'm, we're talking about this i did go to the funeral there we held a visual uh there uh in daytona beach and i don't know some i did not but several people just stood up and talked about neil and mm-hmm. that was still very surreal too it's like why are we what are we doing this for i mean i mean i knew why but i'm just saying this neil bonnet this is not supposed to be happening right right. uh i don't know but some very kind words said about neil i I think what i'm trying to say is even 28 years later uh, it just doesn't seem real even today that we've lost neil and but i have to on a positive note i just have so many fond memories of the man from just the fun that we had together and, and the, you know, it all started from him sitting on the back of that junior Johnson car and invited me into his circle. And I just, I'll forever be grateful for that. And, um, gosh, just, you know, doing this podcast has brought back many, many memories of just little things. You know, you think about people, friends that you've had over the years, and I guess some of these little things just don't really add up to, anything significant but that's okay because they're you just you think about silly things that you've said or done or times that you spent on at the racetrack together and um i just wish i could convey what a nice person he was and how much fun he was i've said it over many times during the podcast but i just if you just if you had had the honor to know the man he was just so much fun around the track as an individual and then to know how much he accomplished on the racetrack mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and no matter what happened, he was the same guy, whether he won or whether he didn't, he never, I never saw him angry. I never saw him mad at anybody. Uh, somebody that I would aspire to be like, right. I, I right. think it's what I'd like to say. Right. And I, and I have to be honest with you. I mean, in, you know, in a, in a lot of ways I have tried to do that way, be that way as far as meeting people and, trying to be an example kind of like him because he he was just such a, a good person i guess is what i'm trying to say enough rambling but he's <laughs> just uh just a good guy but i i've got one question i'm going to put a smile back on your face i know we're getting a little um you know it's 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 sometimes difficult to go through some of the memories but i'm going to put a smile back on your face did you ever ask him after that incident where you know he asked you about you know, understanding women, you know, the first time you really had a chance to really sit down and talk with them. Did you ever ask him, why did he pick you? I mean, were you just, were you just there? Or did you look like a marriage counselor that he knew that maybe you was walking <laughs> through the pits? I mean, you know, it, it no. just, it kind of boggles my mind that, you know, you're walking around and all of a sudden this guy, you know, says, Hey, I want to talk to you about women. I go, okay. You know, so no, I, mean, I never did ask him that, but you know what? I'm, I'm glad and honored that he felt 
comfortable asking. Yeah. You know, because something about my personality, I guess, made him feel comfortable asking that question or whatever. And that made me feel good to know. And, and we had a lot of conversations about things, you know, kids. And uh, even though at the time mine was only about three years old at the time, but I mean, just we talked about, Bob, you know, Bobby Allison and Donnie and that whole Alabama gang had become really good friends of mine, Davey, before he passed away. And, you know, that was another thing I wanted to mention too. He was so, um, he was so torn up about the day that Davey was in the helicopter crash because he and he and David were there at Talladega that day testing a car for David mm-hmm. when when uh, Davey was and Davey was there to see uh, David test the car uh, that July eleventh, nineteen ninety three, and uh, or twelfth, excuse me, eleventh was the day they were at New Hampshire, but he flew the helicopter in to see David. And Neil was there and Neil tried to get Davey out of the helicopter and he couldn't. And, uh, he was, Neil was torn all to pieces because he thought it's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault, which it wasn't, but Neil deeply blamed himself for the fact that that happened because had they not been there, he would have not flown the helicopter, but that's, that wasn't Neil's fault. But, uh, yeah, Neil blamed himself for, for Davey's death and, tried to tell him it wasn't your fault and uh so yeah he carried a lot of weight over that but uh anyway uh that's just the way fate had it that davy happened to decide to go over there that day to see and that's when the helicopter crash happened right but yeah that whole alabama gang bobby donnie davy neil uh, all those guys have always been close friends of mine, and I'm proud to say that. And they still are. Bobby and Donnie both still are, and uh, live close to me here in North Carolina, and see them a lot. And anyway, just very happy that they're friends, and we've got a lot of great memories. Exactly, exactly. Well, we're getting uh, coming out of turn four, as I like to say, and heading towards the finish line for today's episode of the podcast. And as we do every week, we talk about. Uh, the episode number in conjunction with a car number. And so this is episode 61. I can't believe it. And this is, I think this is my 31st episode, if I remember correctly with you. I think that, I think I started on episode 30 or 31 with you. And I've enjoyed every single minute of it. And, you know, episode 61, that's the one we're talking about today, quantifies or correlates rather, that's a better word, uh, with the car number 61, which really is one of those numbers where just really didn't have a lot to talk about in the, in terms of the 61. And um, I'll let you tell, you know, your stuff. And I've got a, a little a side story to tell as well too, but tell us about the 61, uh, the number 61 car and uh, uh, it's non claim to fame, I guess is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure can Jerry. Well, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Bill Bennett who started the number 61 on September 11th, 1949 at Longhorn Speedway. And that's up in Pennsylvania. It was a 200 mile race won by Curtis Turner. Uh, and that was, like I say, September 11th of 49. He started 41st and finished 11th. Almost had a top 10 finish with it. But guess what? The number 61 has never been victorious in the Cup Series level. I do remember a guy that raced in the very first race I saw April 16th, 1972, running number 61. His name was Joe Mihalik. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And uh, well, you know what? That's then I should wish you a happy anniversary. April 16th of 90 of uh, 72. That's 50, um, a little over 50 years ago. I mean, was it last week would have been or two weeks ago, I guess almost. Well, happy anniversary of your first ever race. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, that was, we just hit the 50 year mark for me uh, in NASCAR. And uh, yeah, it's been kind of cool to, to be able to look, it makes me feel old. I am, <laughs> believe it or not, I am 61 years old for the 61st uh, podcast. So that, that happened uh, August 31st of last year. <laughs> I'm not good with numbers, but anyway. Uh, yeah. So, but no, the number 61 has never been to victory lane. So sorry to say. Well, and here's some, some more to further extrapolate that. 230 starts, like you said, no wins, only six top fives. That did have more success in the top tens. They had 30 top tens. 
The last time the number 61 who was ever raced in the Cup Series was 2006 by the immortal Chad Chaffin. How about that? How about that? Hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I hope he doesn't have it on, on his uh, his fire suit, Chad who? <laughs> you know, like, like Neil <laughs> on his as well, too. But, but you know... You know uh... One thing, I'm sorry, Jerry, one thing we need to mention before we end our podcast today, sure. we'd be remiss not to mention this. Sadly, we also lost Rodney Orr the right. year of the, that we lost Neil. Three days after we lost Neil Bonnet, February 14th, 1994, we also had another single car accident that year. And Rodney Orr, who was the reigning uh, Daytona Dash Series champion, attempted to uh, run in the Cup Series that year. Again, single car accident three days after Neil's death in that crash. Rodney Orr uh, lost his life coming out of turn two at Daytona International Speedway. Neil's crash was in turn four. So sorry to end it on that note, but uh, we just I felt like we need to mention uh, his death and our uh, continued thoughts and prayers with his family as well. There's why does his name ring a bell to me, Rodney Orr? There's something about his name is ringing a bell to me, and I can't put my finger on it. Uh, just that he was a Daytona Dash Series champion that '93, and uh, I guess, and was coming to become, hoping to be Rookie of the Year in the Cup Series in 1994. Maybe that might have been a yeah, I guess, but yeah, but anyway. So, well, Ben, as always, uh, another great uh, show here in the books, episode number 61 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, and um, looking forward to episode 62 next week, and. Um, uh, you know, looking forward to a lot of other things coming on down the road. We're going to have uh, some more guests. We're going to we're going to get back to getting some guests in, on the show here. Uh, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I know I'm doing some traveling here in the next couple of weeks, so uh, probably will be after I'm done with my traveling. We'll like to get to, you know a couple of people on, but um, definitely looking forward to uh, to that and uh, uh, get another great episode 61 here. And uh, thank you for uh, sir for as always just some great stories and great recollections and. You know, we lost Neil Bonnet way too young, but uh, certainly I'd love to see him. Uh, would love to have seen him, you know, his career go a lot longer and further for sure. Yeah, maybe we'll see Neil Bonnet uh, and inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame possibly in the next year or two. Hopefully. Well, I mean, the 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 selection is May 4th. So, you know, we could be talking next week uh, if we tape it on either that Tuesday or, or that Wednesday, which is the May 4th. We may know at that point who, you know, is being selected. So uh, they're going to, uh, uh, um, I'm trying to remember now that I think they're going to have five people uh, that are going to be inducted um, three modern day, one from the pioneers and one from the, um, I always forget the third category, the, the um, it's, you know, like the broadcasters and, and things like that kind of wing too, as well. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing who is going to be chosen and who will be inducted. I bet I, I'm actually working on a story about one of the nominees, uh, Tim Brewer, and just a phenomenal guy. Really good uh, uh, you know, history, good story, and definitely deserving of the Hall of Fame. So we'll see what happens next week. So anyway, Ben, thanks again as always. Everyone, thanks very much for listening to a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. He's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week on a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.